Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia. On episode 63, I speak with Luke Corse, the director of Gork. We discuss how he used his university work experience here while studying marketing to get a job in America and the culture shocks coming from Australia. How he went from an internship in America making $12 an hour to being the country director for Australia, managing $100 million of assets and building a team of 12. Starting a business with his brother, combining their diverse skills to pursue the untapped opportunity for billboard advertising in regional Victoria. He explains the early challenges in the business, from losing nearly $100,000 to becoming one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia, doing over $2.3 million in annual revenue. If you're looking to grow your business and acquire customers in regional Victoria, check out gawk.com.au. That's G-A-W-K dot com dot A-U. All right, so I'm here with Luke Corse, the director of Gork. Welcome to the podcast, Luke. Thanks for having me, Derek. That's right. Great to have you here. So can you tell us what were you doing before you started Gork? What did you study? What were your early sort of jobs and roles? Yeah, so I studied marketing at RMIT um, for four years. Uh, a really big part of that four-year degree was the third year of the degree being uh, in the workforce, uh, which worked worked really well for me in my career. Um, so I was I was very lucky. In my second year of uni, I got invited to a program in the US for a couple of weeks. And while I was over there, I, I very much decided that that third year working, uh, I'd like to do over in America. Um, so I was able to uh, to line up a, a job over there that I didn't know a whole lot about. Uh, to move over there for my third year of uni. And that was at a company called Landmark Dividend. It was a, a specialty sort of real estate finance company. So we, we'd go around buying the real estate rights under a whole bunch of different things like telecom towers and billboards. Um, so to overly simplify that, if you had a Telstra tower in the back corner of your paddock and, and Telstra was paying you 15 grand a year in rent, We'd come in and say, "Hey, Derek, here's 200 grand as a lump sum, and we own that uh, that rental stream from Telstra." So it was a, a pretty specialised role um, in an industry I didn't know anything about, and I, I packed my bags and went over there for a year, which is is one of the best things I've ever done, and opened up my eyes a little bit, I think. And I was lucky enough to keep a job with them in my last year of uni, moving back to Australia, and and actually starting up that business for them in Australia. No one was really doing it over here. And, uh, and I was able to, to keep working for them while, while I was at uni. And, and then uh, when I graduated, uh, I moved up to Sydney and, and opened an office for them and run that office for about three and a half years um, from, from scratch from when it was just me to we had a team of 12 or 13 when I finished up. Um, so very much a a right place, right time. I got very, very lucky with the kind of opportunities I had when I was 21, 22, 23 that has certainly really assisted me as my career has developed. 
Yeah, and so if we go back to the start, so you said you studied marketing and obviously you worked in marketing and businesses in marketing. So in some ways it feels like a bit of a linear path. When, when did you know that you sort of liked marketing? Were you a, a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old and you liked sort of marketing and that sort of thing? Was someone in your, your family or, or your friendship group involved in that? How did you? When did you, your um, interest in marketing sort of first come up? Yeah, not at all. I, I don't think. I um, I think at, at school I did fairly well, but not quite good enough to to go and study sort of law or, or probably commerce at, at Melbourne. I think I was just below that. And I think if I had got that score, uh, my uni life might have looked a little bit different. So I actually just went to an open day at RMIT and uh, there was a current student there who made it seem like fun. And um, it yeah, it just sort of just happened that way so it was definitely one of those sliding door moments where if she had been having a bad day uh, I might have might have ended up doing something else um, but I, I always really enjoyed it at, at uni I probably sort of leaned towards the the maths and, and numbers subjects a lot more than most people in that field so a, a lot of that and I had a lot of electives at uni around finance and, and economics that was probably a long way from what most people were were choosing. Um, but I, I think, yeah, certainly the theme throughout my career has been a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of forks in the road and uh, and sliding doors moments. I think that was definitely one of them. So, so in a parallel universe, would you have done a BCom law, Melbourne Uni, maybe gone into finance, M and A law, something like that? Do you ever think that's where you would have yeah, ended up? Absolutely, I think that that definitely uh, that definitely is another way that, that my career could have gone. Um, I don't think there's anywhere near a right or a wrong way with any of these, with any of these things. And I think some of those really random moments and people you meet along the way, uh, like there's probably two or three key people that, if I had have never met them, we probably wouldn't have this business. Um, so I, I sort of love, um, how, yeah, how how your career works that way. Hmm. And I know RMIT has been big on, on a, a number of their courses of that co-op sort of. Um, third year where you actually get industry experience and it's sort of quite unique in the university system in Australia. Were you one of the few to look overseas? Did they encourage people to look overseas for work or did most people just get a job with a local Australian business? Yeah, I think I was the only one that I can remember that that went overseas and that was always something that I really wanted to do. Uh, I think it's a great concept and even those that that got a job in, in Melbourne, I, I'm sure everyone would agree that really helped them in their employability leaving school and I think how much you then get out of your last year at uni when you've been out in the workforce um, it, it certainly yeah it gets magnified a little bit in, in your last year and you can apply a lot more stuff but I, I think I might have been the only one that, that went overseas and I, yeah I absolutely love that it was by far the best sort of single choice I think I've made. And was that American company that you ended up working for that year, were they looking for people from abroad and interesting backgrounds or did you sort of pitch them? Were they surprised that someone on the other side of the world wanted to come and, and work for them? Or, it, was, um, yeah, it was quite an amusing story. So they were a company of about 200 people that um, probably shows the difference between Australia and the US. I, I think like they, in Australian terms, are a fairly decent-sized company, um, whereas in, a, in somewhere as big as the US, um, yeah, probably fade into obscurity a little bit in some in some ways. But I actually have a a, a distant relative who is like my second cousin, twice removed, or, or something that uh, I met in LA on the way back from that trip for for dinner. I think we've all sort of probably been through 
um, at, when you're about to travel and someone in your extended family says, oh, you'll have to meet this relative. Um, and I probably had pretty low expectations uh, in how much I might click with some guy that I was having dinner with for uh, a couple of hours. And he's he's since turned into a colleague and one of my best mates. Um, and, and he he helped sort of turn that into a, an internship that didn't exist. Um, but I have to admit, when I actually moved over there, I didn't know very much about the job. It was was more trying to get a job uh, in America. And uh, I still remember my first day and the head of HR said, Luke, welcome to Landmark Dividend. Um, why don't you just, in your words, tell me what we do um, so I can sort of help your onboarding process? And I genuinely couldn't answer that question. It was a very niche business as I, uh, as I went through briefly before and I didn't know much about it at all. And uh, I think I just had the attitude of, yeah, throwing myself in, in the deep end and, um, and having a bit of a crack. And what were some of those culture shocks? Like America is similar in some ways, but also different in, in a lot of ways for people who have been there, especially working there and not just traveling. What were some of those early, you're new to the workforce, you're in your early 20s. What were some of those culture shocks once you're actually on the ground in America with the job in hand? Yeah, I, I think the uh, the relationship between employer and employee over there has a very different dynamic to Australia and you really feel that pretty quickly. I, I think um, in Australia, uh, it's there's so much focus put on ma- making sure that everyone enjoys their job and work-life balance. And I think, um, yeah, it's more a team leader or an employer thinking about what they can do for the people that work with them, where over there it, I found that um, very different, not in a negative way, but I think very much uh, over there there's sort of the attitude of there's, hundreds of millions of people there and there's probably 10 other people that would happily take your job um, if you weren't if you weren't doing a good job so I think that dynamic um, yeah I found very different once again not not in a negative way but you could just really feel um, yeah that the differences in, in that regard over there was there an example that sort of really crystallized that for you in the early days well, I actually almost lost my internship uh, before it even started because I was supposed to go in a couple of days uh, before I was starting. And my Commonwealth Bank, I had one of those Commonwealth Bank travel money cards that we probably all had in our first overseas trip. And Commonwealth Bank did some maintenance for five hours in the middle of night in the middle of the night in Australia. And uh, that meant you couldn't actually access your money if you were overseas. And I went to get some cash out so I could get to my my pre-interview a couple of days earlier and couldn't get any money out and couldn't actually get there. Um, and I actually, I pretty much got fired before I'd even started and had to talk my way back into the job I'd moved across the other side of the world for. Um, and yeah, I think that was probably a stark reminder pretty quickly um, yeah, in some of the differences over there. Yeah, no, absolutely. And amazing sort of how these sort of, like you said, these sliding doors and different things happen. And, and so you spent a year there working full time and, and really learned. What, what were some of those takeaways? Again, once you sort of got over the initial culture shock, the actual on the ground sort of business learnings, what were some of those things you still remember from that unique business? Yeah, I just absolutely loved it. Like I, I was so fortunate. I think when I started there, I was on 12 bucks an hour. Um, and I think at one point my rent was 70% of my income. So that brought with it some learnings. Um, but yeah, I sort of started out pretty much as an analyst working for the CEO and putting together board decks and, and things like that. So I got, just got to know 
that business so well and had um, had access to a lot of information that that others didn't. That really helped me understand it. Um, and then, yeah, it was just a unique company where they they just gave me if I was willing to have a go at something, I always got that opportunity, and I'll forever be grateful um, for that. So I was able to to start doing some deals on the sales side of the business. So so calling a lot of property owners and, and trying to buy their assets and. Um, and I traveled around quite a lot as well. So I think I've been to close to 30 states in America. Um, so yeah, I, I was just able to learn a lot off, off particularly sort of three or four people that I still really look up to. Um, but they just, they gave me opportunity after opportunity, um, as long as I was willing to have a crack and, and work hard at it. And, um, yeah, it, it's really, it's really probably turbocharged the rest of my career. Um, so there's yeah, a variety of different things I, I was doing, but uh, I think your accent over there gets you in a few doors. People always want to talk to you. And um, yeah, it was just such a great experience. And, and did you consider once you came back and sort of finished your, your RMIT studies to go back to America and sort of live and work there? Or did you know family, friends, upbringing in Melbourne, that that's sort of where you were going to always be long-term? No, I, I really wanted to move back there and we really explored that. The, um, as many people would know, the visa situation over there, it's, uh, it's a, it was quite easy to get that sort of internship visa, what they call a J1, but then to, to take that to, um, to a next sort of three to five-year visa that then leads into a green card is fairly hard. Like there's really, um, they have to prove that you're doing a job an American couldn't. And it, we pretty quickly realized that um, it was going to be hard, not impossible, and, and no one was really doing what they were doing in the US, in Australia. So once we started dipping our toe in the water over here um, and, and having some success, that probably pretty quickly went out the window. Um, and I was still able to move. I moved up to Sydney for five or six years, so I probably was able to, um, yeah, get somewhere new and, um, and try something different again. Yeah, and then you've sort of um, like a country manager, I guess you'd say, in Australia for that role afterwards, opening up the Australian market, the Australian office. What was that experience like? Again, taking some of those learnings from the head office and then trying to replicate the model within an Australian context. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think my my title was Vice President Australia, which is a very American, uh, American title and shows some of those cultural differences, I think. Um, it was, it really was an amazing experience. Like we, when we first started doing that in Australia, I was genuinely, I'd moved back to mum and dad's for my last year of uni and I was making cold calls from a studio they have, uh, that's disconnected from the house. And, um, and their attitude was, well, if you can find some deals over there and prove there's a market, you know, we'll, we'll give you the resources to, to explore that, um, and yeah, we just found a lot of opportunity really quickly because it was quite unique in Australia. Um, so I was able to finish that last year of uni, moved to Sydney, uh, and over a three and a half year period, we grew that team from just me to to twelve or thirteen. At the end, um, we raised a hundred uh, a fund of a hundred million dollars from a Canadian pension fund, and, and spent a good portion of that while I was there. Um, on assets in Australia, so you know to be able to finish that role at um, at 25, 26 and and be involved in raising 
you know, that kind of money and deploying a lot of it. And um, it was, yeah, I was truly so fortunate to to get that kind of experience at such a young age. Um, and I think, yeah, being able to, you just learn, you learn very quickly when you're thrown in the deep end. And I was still one of the youngest, probably two or three people in the office that I was running. And um, I was very conscious of that at the start when you're hiring and managing people that are, 10, 15 years older than you, um, it's, yeah, it takes some adjusting. It takes, yeah, it took some time to adjust to. But, um, yeah, I think anything that you can just have a go at, you, you eventually learn if you're willing to persevere and make some mistakes. And what did your friends, family, university professors think? Where you go away, you do this internship, and people do gap years and internships, and you know semesters abroad. You you come back and you're the the VP or the you know country director with a hundred million dollar assets to uh to to sort of put out there. What were people just like? What the hell? And what was the reaction a, of your peers? It's it's such a niche industry that it's. I was always that person that even towards the end of that role, some of my closest friends still couldn't have told you what I was actually doing because it's it was um, a pretty strange concept. Um, so I think the amount of people I knew that even understood what I was doing was fairly limited. Um, and half of them probably thought I was making it up for a lot of that period, I think, because um, it was hardly a company that was a household name or an industry that anyone could understand uh, what we actually did. So. Uh, yeah, I think I think there's a lot of them that couldn't really figure out what I was on about or why I was moving to Sydney. Yeah, it's sort of, if anything, it's a sort of high responsibility but low status sort of role because people thought you're sitting in some empty office by yourself for a company no one's heard of. And um, okay, we always used to describe it as it's one of the hardest jobs to describe at a barbecue. If you're at a barbecue and someone would say, you know, what do you do? Um, it, it was very hard to to describe so i think people's eyes would glaze over uh, when you'd start trying to talk about it it probably wasn't a hugely sexy uh industry in that regard yeah i imagine the real estate people would think oh it's some marketing nonsense and the marketing people think that's some real estate nonsense and neither one would really sort of get it yeah completely i think unless you met someone that was out of the finance industry and understood um that business model and and how we we're making money it was pretty hard to um yeah to get someone across how it actually worked and so was there a event or a trigger moment that made you want to start your own business and start Gork? Um, and what was it like, you know, once you did sort of start it? I think I always I always had something inside me that wanted to uh, that wanted to go and do something myself. Um, I don't think there's any one single moment. There's probably a few things that um, that contributed to it uh, in that job at landmark we did buy the leases underneath billboards as well. So I got to know the industry a little bit um, while I was in that role and met a couple of key people um, at at large billboard companies. Um, one of them in particular, his name's Noel Cook. He was at O Media, who are the biggest billboard company in Australia for 30 years. Um, his brother had founded that and he'd been in the business for 30 years and was very generous to me with his time when I was in my role at Landmark. And he was probably the first person that, um, yeah, that, that made me think about outdoor and, um, and yeah, billboards. And I think if I hadn't met him, it might have worked out a little bit differently. So I sort of I saw a lot of there's a, there's a small handful of family-owned billboard companies in Australia, and I, I 
I did look up to to a few of them and thought it was an interesting industry. Um, so I think that that played a part. Um, my brother James and I had worked together. Uh, we we worked for Cotton On in in shop fitting for three years while we were both at uni, driving forklifts and packing shipping containers and. And always love working together. Um, and he actually worked with me at Landmark for for a year or so while he was at uni. Um, and then he got into architecture and, and town planning. Um, and yeah, I think the billboard industry for us represented probably a way to potentially work together. Like he had the experience going to councils and and getting things approved and building things. I had some leasing and finance experience and a bit of experience in sales. Um, so it was probably more a way for us to work together um, than any sort of single light bulb moment. Um, so we sort of explored a couple of really minor things uh, in the billboard industry towards the end of that last role. And we, we, we thought we might just put up a couple of billboards as a passive income stream on the side and, um, and see how that went. Um, and that plan turned out to be an unmitigated disaster after we'd spent a hundred grand of our own money, which is 25 and 23 year olds when you don't own a house and you own a shit car, um, was, was a lot of money. And, um, we sort, we sort of spent that. They weren't, the billboards weren't selling. Um, so we thought we might just build them. And so have, what was the concept there? You, you bought the rights to a billboard and you thought, well, we'll on sell it because advertisers want to buy it. And then we collect a, a sort of a margin on that. Or what was the, the theory? And then what actually happened once you tried it? Yeah, so in the billboard industry, there, there are a few sort of passive participants that will go and, and sign a long-term lease with a, with a property owner, get a, an approval from council, and then have someone like O-Media sell the space for them. And, um, and I would just take a commission. Uh, and, and there are some people that have done that over the years and done that pretty successfully, and it's been quite a passive business. Um, so we thought that seemed like a, a pretty easy thing to do. Um, and we, we put up a billboard in Portland uh, down past Warrnambool and then one in Bendigo and we thought, well, maybe O-Media will just sell them, sell the space for us and we can sort of sit back and make some passive income and, uh, yeah, it didn't quite work out that way. Um, so I think, yeah, we we probably took the view that we were young enough to, to go and have a really good crack at it and if it all just went up in flames and we burned all our money, we were we'd be young enough to go and try something else. And, uh, you know, we would have been in our late 20s, but we could go get another job and we had the rest of our lives to make that money back, but maybe not the rest of our lives to have a really good go when you, you don't have kids and you your appetite for risk is a, a bit higher. And, and so um, you saw it wasn't working. Did you then try and sort of sell the ad space yourself direct to the, the, the advertisers or were you able to sort of salvage something out of it or was it a bit of a, a cash-burning exercise? No, we still have both those sites, and they're really well-performing sites today. But um, we just didn't understand how to how to sell them. So we, yeah, we the first thing we tried is we just went, we drove down to Portland, we door knocked every single business and see if we could um, if we could get get a get a client on them. And we, we struggled a bit um, in Bendigo. We did a deal with a really large property developer there um, that started getting a little bit of money coming back our way. Um, and then we got very lucky and there was a state election coming up. That was um, what must be four, just over four years ago. Um, and they're not my favourite ads, but politicians um, and people running for office uh, are always keen to buy just about anything around campaign time. 
so we're able to to sell a couple of election ads and um and then i think yeah the more people we try to sell advertising space to the more you learn about that process and and how to run the sales process and and how to package something up and uh but we definitely learned that the hard way i, I think we spoke to a couple hundred people before we made one sale um so there was yeah there's definitely plenty of opportunities to to give up and i think when you've got two of you that's a lot easier as well to to hang fat and and keep on going because um, you only need one of you to wake up in a good mood and it um <laughs> yeah it, it helps helps get more out of that day yeah that's sort of the joke as well with sort of business partners and sometimes even marriages right as long as you both don't want to quit on the same day it's sort of you know you keep going and, and, and so how did that then evolve into the bigger opportunity at Gork with sort of regional Victoria out of home advertising um again once they were kind of breaking even or or you saw like you said some positive success at uh, 2018 election that you then thought well we can replicate this is a scalable model how did the sort of the next phase of the business evolve so what we knew is uh in regional Victoria, in the scheme of things, there wasn't many billboards. So when we started, um, I knew enough about the industry from my last job to have some kind of grasp. And, and what really stood out to us is in somewhere like regional Queensland, there was about 3,000 billboards and, and two or three really strong independent privately owned players up there. Um, whereas in regional Victoria, there was only a couple of hundred billboards Um so we knew that there wasn't that many compared to other states. Um, and then what became really striking as we we started getting into the industry was that in in Victoria, those, those couple of hundred billboards were pretty much solely sold to really large advertisers. So, you know, Commonwealth Bank or Telstra or the Victorian government. Um, whereas when we drove around regional Queensland, regional New South Wales, you often saw you know, the local tyre shop or a real estate agent. Um, and that was, yeah, in Victoria, that didn't really exist. Um, and that's what we found quite quickly um, once we started putting up a, a handful of sites is, hold on, there's all these businesses in regional Victoria that that want to advertise uh, on a billboard and, and really haven't had, had the, the ability to do that in the past. And we sort of uncovered that, yeah, that untapped market, I think, that really sort of, yeah, made us realise there was something there. Yes, it's interesting in your first role that you took an idea from America to Australia and then once you came back, you took an idea from uh, New South Wales and Queensland back to Victoria. So, again, it's that sort of um, interesting geographical sort of arbitrage. Did you have a theory why that was? Like, were you thinking, are we missing something? Is there some regulation? There's some difference that it, why it won't work here? Or you just thought, no, here's an opportunity just no one seized upon or it's just a, a legacy issue and there's no reason why it can't and won't sort of work? And there definitely are differences. Like there'll never be three thousand billboards in in regional Victoria for a variety of sort of council planning reasons that I won't bore you with. Um, but uh, yeah, I think we, I think maybe a lot of people spend too much time thinking about all the reasons why something can't work rather than, than just having a go at it. Um, and I think that's what we did is we we put a, a decent amount of money into it for the age we were, um, but. Yeah, it, it was a calculated risk and I think we've always been willing to to just have a go at something and, and see how it works out. And um, even some of the things that haven't worked are probably the ones that you've learned the most from. Um, so, yeah, I think we've sort of just um, we figured that out along the way a little bit. 
Yeah, and then you've really started to get some big momentum behind you, growing 95% last financial year, um, doing over 2.3 million in annual sales, becoming one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. So so was there a certain inflection point where you really sort of started to, to hit your stride and hit that growth? And then what was it like, you know, managing that growth as you were sort of winning, I imagine, that the business and the revenue and then maintaining it and fulfilling on it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's still constantly changing. Um, certainly in our industry, it was it was a real slog for the first sort of 20 sites we built. Um, you don't have enough scale where big clients want to talk to you. Um, so you, you really have each site, you're really having to go and bang the door down to all the, the local businesses and try and drum up some sales. Um, like, so if you went to a big business, they would say, yep, if you can give us East Coast billboards, we'll sign. But you would say, oh, we've only got five or 10. And that, they say, yeah. oh, no, 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 we need a, a one like provider who can get us up and down the whole coast, for example. That's where you'd lose those big deals. Yeah, completely. And even the clients that would spend all over regional Victoria, if you only had five sites, um, it just wasn't enough for them to to really be interested. So I think we really found that out the hard way. Um, and it was really, really hard work for the the first sort of probably 20 sites. So it probably took us probably took us a couple of years before you get to the end of the week and not have any thought on is this going to work or not. Um, so uh, yeah, after two years, we had about 25 sites. And I think at that point we went, okay, it's a viable business. And until then it was just getting there fast enough and burying your doubts and, and, and working hard. And then it probably, yeah, after two years, we thought, you know, th- there's something here. And I think it's then probably taken us another two years before, uh, yeah, you really reach that inflection point. And it's maybe even only the last six months where we're now at, 85 locations um, and, and 10 of them are digital billboards that um, you can run you know, 10 clients a week on um, that we've probably got to that point where, um, yeah, things start becoming a little bit easier. Some of the bigger clients are much more open to talking to you. Um, and I think we've just, we've always taken the, the approach of, We'll just build enough really high quality sites that they have to. Um, and, and now I think we're at that point where we're probably sort of 40, 45% market share in regional Victoria and in, in our industry. And we've got enough really high quality sites that a lot of those bigger clients now, yeah, are much more willing to deal with you. And I could give you 15 examples of people that we've called and of companies we've called and emailed for four years and only now we're we starting to to win a little bit of business from them. Yeah, and so, so you had the interesting and rare experience of kind of like of being a, a VP or a country director, whatever you want to call it in the previous job. But in that one, you're on a salary and you're given a budget. And, and again, you're sort of, you're hiring and you're building a team and you're starting from scratch. But fundamentally, again, you've, you've got a salary and a protection. How did that experience differ from when you started to build a team with your own you know money and capital and risk and, and your own business versus your first, or, or were there lessons you learned about people management and recruiting and you know role designation from the first? time around that sort of helped you a lot running Gork and building a team yeah I think it was super relevant all that experience and we're up to we've got a team of eight now that will continue to to grow and we'll probably probably double the size of that team in the next sort of eight 12 to 18 months um and I think there was a lot of lessons from that job at, at Landmark uh so I think there was yeah there was definitely definitely mistakes that that I'd made that 
um, that I was able to learn from. I think in any kind of hiring process, there's no one that ever masters that and has a hundred percent strike rate in in people they bring through the door. Um, I think we culturally we've been so lucky with the team we've been able to to put together, um, and I, I think that's always what we what we've focused on as we've grown the business in. Um, like for James and I, it's it's being able to find people that you're really going to enjoy you know, spending a lot of hours between a Monday and a Friday with. Um, and we do take that long-term view and, and quite a selfish view. And I want my each week to be as fun as it possibly can. And um, it's about surrounding yourself with people that are going to do that. I think like the main difference here has been just having 100% control over absolutely every part of that hiring process and, and management process. I think that was something that that could be hard at times working for an American company is uh, you'd get a call from head office saying, here's a, here's a big change. Um, you mightn't agree with it, but you've got to go and sell it to your team. Um, so I think having that 100% control over um, yeah, every part of the business and and never being in that position where someone might suggest something to you that you think is a good idea and you can't implement it. Um, so was there something particular that you wanted to do at Landmark that you couldn't, that you now do at Gork? I don't think there was any anything sort of anything major. Like I think that was I had a fairly big sales team in that landmark job, and there was a couple of times where uh, where like compensation structures changed, um, not necessarily for the better from the American side, and that would impact what I was going to earn and what everyone else was going to earn, and I had to suck it up and and. And try and sell that to my team when I didn't necessarily um, believe that that was the greatest thing ever for them and their family. So I, I had a couple of situations like that that were quite hard. Um, so I think that was certainly a really big learning that we've sort of tried to put in place with this business is making sure that the way that people are going to earn money is a model that's going to stay the same and you're not moving the goalposts on people um, because I've probably been in the position where I was disgruntled for a few weeks when when that was moved on me. Um, so I think that's definitely been, um, yeah, a bit of a learning, but there's definitely a lot of other small things uh, along the way that, um, yeah, you're always going to do something better when you do it for the second time uh, versus the first time. Yeah, and like you mentioned with that um, control that you can decide, no one can come over your head and, and change all the territories or the comp plan um, without your sort of permission. And, and so we were discussing a bit before the recording about the changing, um, you know, how COVID particularly has changed a lot of, um, you know, people who might have lived in Melbourne now move to regional, people commute in, commute out, maybe tree changes, sea changes being on the ground with talking to regional businesses every day and I imagine studying sort of regional consumers and what, what trends have you seen within Victoria in sort of the regional markets that maybe some people aren't aware of if they're not sort of thinking about it? I think it's definitely changed the narrative in, in people in Melbourne are now a lot more aware of regional areas. Uh, I don't know if that sort of escape from the city, um, you certainly, if you were walking down the main street of of Bendigo or, or Ballarat today versus three years ago, I, there's there's not a noticeable difference that you know half of Melbourne has escaped the city and is now living in in regional areas. I, I think you definitely saw that in in house prices and a lot of a lot of regional areas haven't had the same growth that cities have, and, and they've now probably experienced that. Um, 
But I think, um, yeah, I think hopefully it's a it's a narrative that can stay. I think there are some great opportunities um, in regional areas. I think people that can work remotely, um, why wouldn't you want to live by the beach or by the river or, or on some land? Um, and, yeah, so I really hope some of those changes stick. I think, um, yeah, for so long, a lot of the narrative, whenever regional areas are, are in the news, it's normally just when negative things happen, um, and we've seen it with floods recently. Um, like we've got, we've got the only digital billboard in Echuca that's been really hard hit. Um, that's an area that's been hard hit by by floods. And having spent some time up there recently, um, since the floods hit, I think there's more frustration on how that's been portrayed in the media than there is actually. Um, yeah, people. I think people up there are more frustrated in the long-term impacts of tourism because everyone thinks the whole town's underwater than there are. Um, there's definitely been some people that have been impacted and that's been really sad to see. But for every one person that's been impacted, there's probably 25 other people whose businesses and livelihoods will be impacted for the next 12 months because tourism dies down. Um, because unfortunately, Channel 7 or Channel 9 don't go out there a couple of weeks later. Uh, it's not as... as um, it, it doesn't get as many eyeballs to say, hey, everything's actually fairly normal than it does to, to show someone's house underwater. Um, and I think for so long, there's been so many examples of um, probably the media, yeah, really focusing on negative issues regionally when there's so much positive stuff to, to focus on. And maybe the Commonwealth Games in regional Victoria can help that as well. That's going to be enormous for the state. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and so if we zoom out a little bit from um, the sort of the marketing and, and the, the regional space, what do you see in uh, entrepreneurship in Australia in general? I imagine you chat to a lot of other business owners and, again, they travel around. Um, what do you think Australian businesses and entrepreneurs are doing well? And then where, and again, having lived and worked abroad too, where do you see um, there's even further room for sort of growth and improvement? Yeah, I think I'm wholly unqualified to be able to give a comprehensive worldwide answer comparing entrepreneurship in Australia to, to other countries. Uh, but that being said, I, I, what I know a lot about is uh, is regional areas and, and outdoor advertising. Um, and yeah, I, I do deal with a lot of other business owners in our, in our line of work because we have clients really in every industry. Um, I think one thing that people in Australia do really well is Everyone is so generous, I think, in wanting to help others. Um, and, and that's, yeah, that's different business owners. Um, it's people in corporate jobs. I think people really go out of their way to really help other people. And um, I've seen so many examples of that. Um, with our business, we've had so many people in outdoor advertising with much bigger businesses who have given us so much advice over the years and seen nothing in return. Um, I think even during COVID, like we had, we had probably twenty five or thirty different landlords when COVID started, and probably thirty percent of them called us before we could call them, and said, "Hey, if you can't afford to pay rent for the next few months, don't worry." Um, and, and I think, yeah, people in this country genuinely want to see other people do well in business, and I think people go out of their way to provide advice and. And help each other, and I think we've been, we've really seen the benefits of that, and we try and do the same thing ourselves. So I think that's something that, that we do really well in Australia. Um, yeah, that that 
that's something I've always really noticed and uh, and really benefited from. And you've mentioned mentors and advice. Was there a piece of advice that really stuck with you, maybe during one of the hard times in your business or as you were growing that you you really sort of live by? Yeah, I, I don't know if there's been any one sentence I have printed you know, above my desk or every day as I walk into the office. I think I we learn a lot from from a lot of other companies and and for us it's not just other outdoor advertising companies. Uh, like we're at a point now where our closest competitors are probably in radio and TV and, and other forms of advertising. And there's some businesses in those spaces that that do amazing things that that we really try and emulate as well. Um, but yeah, I think I, I've I've seen a lot of people that have um, yeah that have had a real go at things over the years, and that's all we've we've tried to do. So it's probably a few themes that we implement day to day and week to week, rather than that one perfect sentence that gets you out of bed in the morning. Yeah, and speaking of other marketing and media sort of companies, you know, a lot of people start digital marketing companies, you know, sort of an infinite amount of them, but not a lot of people start out of home um, billboard sort of companies. Um, where do you see maybe the average business owner or person in media or marketing, like a marketing uh, manager at a big company, misunderstand sort of out of home or, again, some of these um, sort of less longer standing or maybe less sort of sexy topics versus, you know, SEO and um, Facebook ads and um, VR and all these other things are all very trendy and, and sort of take up a lot of space in the news versus these tried and true have been around for hundreds of years, will still be around hundreds of years, things like out of home. Um, where do you think they sometimes maybe, or what are they not seeing that you see? Yeah, I think we've been fortunate in out of home advertising in it's probably the only one, the only traditional advertising medium that hasn't faced real challenges outside of COVID anyway. Uh, like we, there's more and more cars on the road. Um, the the out-of-home advertising industry has actually still grown quite quickly. Um, so it's, it's really, it's more than doubled since 2010. Um, so I think whereas like radio and TV and print, um, particularly print and probably TV have, have had some challenges. Um, there's still a lot of positive media and rhetoric around out of home. And I think like the growth of digital billboards has been a big part of that. Um, and, and I think we've probably seen in the last year or two, there's been a lot of these advertisers that, uh, that, that started their businesses on digital advertising um, that are now really coming back, coming around to traditional advertising methods um, like as th- there's enormous data showing that the cost of, of a lot of those online advertising mediums has gone up and up um, and we all see more and more ads and it's been harder to to acquire customers that way and we've started to see a lot of those kind of clients that that might have built their businesses online going to traditional advertising mediums um, so yeah we it's some kind of, it can be an educational process and, and for us like the easiest way um, to cut through is just show that you're generating results for clients and I think what a lot of the the growth in in online advertising and, and people using social media and Google and, and things like that has done for us is it's actually allowed us to prove value for clients which has obviously has has in in the past been quite hard if whether you advertise on TV or radio or on a billboard to actually prove that um, here's the impact it had 
And I think now we have the ability to show someone, you know, here's, here's how many times someone searched for your business on Google in the six months leading up to being on a billboard. And then here's how much they search for you in the six months after. Um, so it's actually been out of being turned into a strength for us in, in showing someone uh, like we've got clients that uh, we've got a zoo who's a client who's been around for 20 years and they went up on a billboard and the first week they're up on the billboard, they got five times the amount of, of Google searches for that zoo than they'd ever had in a week. And they've been around for 20 years. Um, so it's really, yeah, I think it's helped us show the value. And I think we can, yeah, can build brands on a billboard um, probably more effectively than, than they can when you're on Facebook and scrolling past 10 different ads for a variety of different things or on the radio where people are changing the channel um, or, or on TV where someone's probably just turning it off during the ad break. So, um, yeah, I think we're pretty bullish on the overall industry. Yeah, and so if we go back to, again, your sort of, um, you know, maybe the 18-year-old version of you, so before you're even, you've just finished high school and, again, you're thinking, do I do commerce law, do I do marketing, do I do business, do I do accounting, do I do something else? And so a lot of people, you know, every year, obviously, you hit that point, you finish high school, you get your mark, maybe it's not exactly what you thought or what you want, but you're not even sure what you do want to do. What advice would you give to a sort of 18-year-old out there today who's interested in business and wants to have a go but doesn't really know where to start or what 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 way to think about their own sort of future? Yeah, my advice would be just go and have a have a crack. And I think that first decision, um, you, you learn a lot more from that journey than the decision. And yeah, for me, I could have studied two or three other things and I probably would have ended up somewhere different. Um, but yeah, I think we sometimes spend too much time thinking about that decision and and weighing up the pros and cons and doing a SWOT analysis and um, sometimes just having a go you might make some mistakes along the way, but being okay with that, knowing that you'll learn from them, I think that's that's the right attitude. And um, yeah, sometimes just being crippled by indecision can cost people more than actually just having a go at something, even if it doesn't work out. Yeah, and you know, nothing's sort of fatal. And like I said, you learn, you try again, you adapt, and, and you never know what will lead to like your early job is very niche and abstract, but then in a, in a in an interesting way, actually led to sort of what you do now. Um, and what about the future of Gork? You know, do you have a sort of five-year, medium-term sort of direction you're aiming in and plan? Is it to, you know, expand into other regional markets, um, sort of East Coast, West Coast, in between? Is it other media forms in regional markets where you've already got a good good knowledge within Victoria? How do you sort of think about the medium-term of Gork? Yeah, I think we have a really clear probably three- to four-year plan. Um, we've now, we've built 85 billboards. We know how to get them approved and build them and we know how to sell the advertising space and we know how to grow a team. So we, we're really comfortable in what the next three to four years will look like, even just in regional Victoria. Um, we've just had so much traction in that market that we still think we can probably triple the size of our business just in regional Victoria. Um, and for us, we, we now, yeah, we look at our competitors and they're in our competitors we look at are, are in media, not in outdoor advertising. So it's it's how do we how do we really um, chip away at at regional TV, and regional radio, and regional print? Um, and I, I think in five years' time, when people talk about um, like Prime Seven in regional TV or Win, who have Channel Nine or Southern Cross or Stereo and, and some of these kind of companies. Um, 
that's it's certainly in regional Victoria. We see ourselves as being part of that conversation when they talk about the five or six biggest players in in media and regional Victoria. Um, we very much believe we'll be one of those names. Um, whether we can replicate that in in other states or 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 other parts of advertising, only time will tell. And I don't know the answer to that question. Maybe we will, um, but yeah, we'll certainly um, never stop having a go at it and and yeah, making a few mistakes along the way. Um, but yeah, I think we've got a lot of growth. The team will continue to grow. I think, yeah, in, in three to four years, we, we probably have, we probably triple the size. We probably have 150 locations and a team of, of 20 or 25. And, um, that's certainly, yeah, where I expect us to be in a few years time, but past that, um, you could probably crunch numerous spreadsheets and, ask 10 different people and come up with um, a really high level 10-year plan. But uh, I think we're sort of focused on the next three or four years and and see what happens after that. Excellent. And do you have any final thoughts or, or words you'd like to leave the audience with? Uh, not particularly, just to anyone that, that hasn't spent a lot of time in regional areas. Uh, Derek, before we started, you were mentioning that you've been lucky enough in the last couple of years to, to get to places like Bendigo and Ballarat and Bright and... Uh, there was actually some research, it was just before COVID, so the numbers might have changed. But at that point, uh, one in two people in Melbourne, so 50% of the people in Melbourne had not spent a single night in regional Victoria in the past three years, which is a pretty incredible stat when you think of some of the amazing places around our state and, and other parts of regional Australia. So hopefully, hopefully COVID has changed that. Um, but I, I couldn't encourage people to get out to those areas enough because I'm lucky to do it, lucky enough to do it a couple of days a week. And um, I, I'm so fortunate in some of those places I get to go to because they really are incredible. Yeah, and no, I absolutely second that and definitely encourage anyone in Melbourne to get outside the Melbourne bubble and, and spend some time in the rest of Victoria and not just uh, go interstate and overseas. So, no, ab- absolutely. Thanks so much, Luke. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Derek. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to the Future of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.